Välkommen till Fritankes podd. Christer Sturmark heter jag och är förlagschef på vetenskapsförlaget Fritanke. Jag vill börja med att verkligen tacka er alla som var med på Circus i måndags när vi hade Daniel Dennett och Nick Boström i en hel kväll om medvetandets natur och artificiell intelligens. Det, det är verkligen tack vare er som, som det är möjligt för oss att anordna den här typen av vetenskapsevent i världsklass. Det är fantastiskt roligt att vi kan få möjlighet att göra det. Tack vare att ni kommer. Nu ska vi få träffa en av deltagarna i det eventet, nämligen Daniel Dennett som är gäst i denna podd. Över till professor Daniel Dennett. Okay, Daniel Dennett, welcome to Free Tanky Pod. Delighted to be here. <laughs> Your new book has just come out in Swedish from from bacteria till Bach and och tillbaka from bacteria to Bach and back. What is it about? It's about the evolution of the human mind. And of course, in order to do that, you have to do the evolution in my, of minds in general. And so you have to go way back to the very beginnings of life. To the bacteria. Right back to the bacteria. <laughs> yes. But they didn't have any mind, did they? Well, they didn't, but they are immensely complicated little living things. And they actually have some cognitive machinery inside them at the at the macromolecular level so they're they are not conscious but they are amazingly adept uh, at what they do and they do some things very well tell me i mean the book says from bacteria to back and back yes. what do you mean by that uh, with that the arc of the book is that first We had for three billion years, more than that, three and a half billion years, we had living things that had no comprehension at all, no understanding. They were very good. They got better and better at what they did, but they they didn't know the reasons why they were doing anything and they didn't have to. We're the first species on the whole planet that knows the reasons why they're doing things mm. or thinks they know. Mm, yeah, we're often wrong. Yeah. Uh, but this capacity to reflect on and represent our own reasons and treat our reasons as objects of thought in themselves. That is a very key moment for us because it's what makes us into intelligent designers. Hmm. We can plan ahead. We can have blueprints and projects and work out the feasibility and and uh, think ahead and then design projects that might take centuries to unfold. Uh, and we've got a plan and a reason for that plan and the details we demand reasons for what for the parts we're the only creature that does that and we've only been around in that form for only for millennia only for tens of thousands of years and not many tens certainly less than a million years now so we've moved from a 3 billion year period where there was no intelligent design just Darwinian natural selection, to a period, brief period, when we have intelligent design. By us. By us, mm. yes. Yes, the heavens and not by God, by <laughs> us. We're, we're the intelligent designers, and then one might say we, many people want to create God in our own image. Yeah. But uh, now the question is, is evolution going to stop, or is, what's the next phase? And I want to suggest that the next phase is the age of post-intelligent design because we now have enough intelligent designers to have been able to figure out how design, Darwinian design works, how evolutionary processes work. And we're now harnessing those processes to make new systems, new artifacts, new computer systems, which do the heavy lifting and they can do it better than we can. And so we're offloading a lot of our cognitive work to systems that just like natural selection, they don't understand a thing, they're not, they're competent, but they don't have any comprehension. The big uh, motto of the book in a way is competence without comprehension, which was the rule until very recently 
and is now becoming the rule in some other areas too. And the competence is, competence is in some cases spectacular. But, but tell me, I mean, um, you say that this happened very late in the evolutionary process. How late? Can we identify when this happened for humans? Oh, not to the year or the day. No, but, but to, more or less. Um, well, I would say 50,000 years gets you uh, very little clear intelligent design before that. Um, and what do, you, what do you base that <coughs> estimation on? Well, that's when we start seeing um, serious artifacts that require uh, a succession of parts put together with forethought and so forth. Um, uh, the Ashralian hand axe mm -hmm. was around for a million years, a uh, human artifact, but it didn't change at all, and it was uh, just a shaped piece of stone, mm -hmm. uh, no handle or anything. And, and uh, um, was that intelligent design? I don't think so. I think, uh, after all, the, the, the nests built by birds are not intelligent design. They don't know why they're doing what they're doing. They're, they're very good nest builders. And I think that the reflective, reasoned making of artifacts, of houses, of ships, of boats, of weapons, of cooking utensils, and computers, and rockets, uh, and CERN, uh, these uh, artifacts of intelligent design their ancestry goes back, as I say, maybe 50,000 years, but no more than that. And that's, of course, just, a, just a, a twinkling, just a blink in the history of evolution. That's, that's true. But uh, at the same time, some scientists says that chimpanzees, for example, they have a theory of mind in some way, at least. They can understand what other thinks or believes, even if it's wrong, and they can cheat. And Yes and no. This is a this is a research area, which uh, uh, I think I have some responsibility for instigating, since I okay. uh, wrote a few papers on the topic back in the '80s, which then got picked up, and a lot of the research on theory of mind grew out of some tests that I proposed. And to this day, as I predicted, it is inconclusive. Okay. Uh, uh, and theory of mind, I think, is, first of all, a very bad idea uh, for terminology. I've never wanted to call it a theory. It's, yes, chimpanzees have considerable competence in anticipating what their fellows are going to do, but that competence is not really a theory. Uh, you can probably ride a bicycle. Do you have a theory of bicycle riding? No, that's true. Probably not. And uh, they don't have a theory either. So that. In itself, that term, theory of mind, wears its intellectualism on its sleeve, and intellectualism is almost always wrong. <laughs> what should it be called then? I mean, the ability to, to understand that you believe something which is not true, but I know that you believe this. Well, I say you're a second-order intentional system. Yeah, okay, second-order yeah. intentional system. You, you adopt the intentional stance towards others. Oh, yeah, okay. And can chimpanzees do that? Very little, but they can. There are, there are some quite convincing tests, and not just in chimpanzees, in birds. In birds, yeah. And in cetaceans, in whales and dolphins. Uh, but it never goes explosive. Mm -hmm. It never reiterates recursively. But human beings can, uh, uh, there can be a situation where you say to me, without having to think hard about it, you might say, well, I know you think she wants you to know that she wants a gift, but in fact, <laughs> you're yeah. wrong. Now, that's about six orders right there, and you don't have any trouble either composing it or following it. When the circumstance requires that kind of thinking, we're, it comes naturally to us, not to any other creature. That's interesting. And I read somewhere that you can test small children for autism by seeing if they have this capacity of second order. Uh, is, is that right? Um, yes, although I think the more interesting way of putting it is that um, 
on the autism spectrum, high-functioning autistic uh, individuals, uh, Asperger's syndrome, that, mm. that end of the spectrum, um, they really do have a theory of mind. Temple Grandin, a prime example, she has to work hard at it, and she, she has to think carefully about what the implications are, what that, what that upturned facial, the mouth, the upturned mouth means a smile, means happy, or maybe it doesn't mean happy. Maybe it's somebody trying to sell me a used car. Uh, but she, those of us who, who don't have her difficulty, just automatically do this. We don't have to think about it. She has to think about it. So it, if anybody has a theory of mind, she does. Okay, I see what you mean. She has to really explicitly have a theory about it. It's a, it's, it's, a little, it's a little bit like jazz musicians who play by ear. Uh, uh, um, some jazz musicians play by ear because they've learned music th harmony theory. Yeah. And they, they, can, they can tell you what chords they're playing and they, they know why these chords go together the way they do in there. They have a theory of, of music. Yeah. Of, uh, they have a theory of jazz harmony and a theory of jazz uh, 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 structure. Uh, other jazz musicians just play, and they <laughs> and they don't have any theory at all. Are you a musician yourself? Sort of. I I was a I was a struggling uh, jazz pianist at one time, okay, I but I was very much of the theory type. I ah. um, uh, I couldn't imagine that people could just do it. Uh, the way I discovered good ones can yeah. without any any uh, background knowledge of the theory. Maybe we should say something about Temple Gradin. Uh, she's a professor of uh, what is it exactly? <clears throat> well, I can't, I don't know what her title is, but she's she's an expert on um, animal care, yeah. really, and how how to treat animals appropriately. Yeah, 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 yeah. And she's an autistic person? Yes. Yeah, yeah. Do you know her? I've never met her, no. but I've read her books and seen, yeah. her, seen her on television. And yeah, so it's forth. been a documentary on Swedish television about her yeah, as well. Yeah. Okay, going back to your book. So you're, you're, you're in your book you're describing basically how consciousness comes about through an evolutionary process. Yeah. Can you just shortly for, the, for our listeners describe that process. How does consciousness evolve? Well, the most important part in this book is that there's not one evolutionary process but two. And human consciousness is very much dependent, I argue, on cultural evolution, which is itself Darwinian, or at least the parts of it that matter for this establishing this, that what distinguishes us from other animals is that we have thinking tools, language, mm. but many, many others. Mathematics? Mathematics, maps, clocks, mm. uh, calendars, mm. uh, uh, and, and a thousand others, many of which have no names, but they're not in our genes. If you grew up on a desert island, you wouldn't have any of those competences, and you don't have to invent them yourself. And growing up in the civilized world, in the social world, any part of the human world, you will acquire these thinking tools at a great rate. You learn to speak, you learn how to think about all sorts of things. This changes the structure, the functional structure of your brain in dramatic ways. It gives you many powers that you wouldn't otherwise have. I, I like to say that these thinking tools are like the apps on your cell phone. And that- Apps, that's a good metaphor. And, and these are apps that you download to your neck top. <laughs> okay, so that helps us evolve consciousness. Yes, so, so the human, normal human consciousness is like is to the human brain as a cell phone loaded with apps is to your basic underlying hardware. The underlying hardware can't do very much no. on its own. No. no and uh, I love to quote my old friend Bo Dalbum on this, <laughs> who once said, you can't do much carpentry with your bare hands, 
and you can't do much thinking with your bare brain. <laughs> you need thinking tools. Yeah, yeah, that's true. But but but, but the question then arises: Why? Um, I I mean, I can understand all that, but why do we need the ability to to self-reflect or whatever you call it in English to to have this sense of an I, me? It, wouldn't it work just as well, like for the animals? to just navigate the world with some kind of planning ability, but not self-reflecting ability? No, I, that's a good question. I think the answer is no. I think that it's the reflective powers of a normal human mind that give us the perspective that alone gives us the competence to be moral agents. You have to be, as Kant said, you have to be moved by reasons. Mm. Moved by reasons presented to you. You have to be capable of listening to an argument, a persuasion, and telling, telling a threat from a promise and understanding why this might be a good reason for not taking the step that you thought you were going to take. It's this capacity to pause and think about what you're doing and what its implications are that I think no other animal has. A very, very short time horizons and very limited appreciation of goals. Uh, a bear can't decide that, oh, it doesn't really care whether it has a family, whether it makes bear cubs, it's going to study French instead, or, mm. or become a violinist, or go off and, and uh, make mud pies on an island or something. Uh, th they don't have the openness to alternative, alternatives to the immediate reality they're in, th that we do. Mm. Um, and this is important for free will. What free will really is, is having, in the engineer sense, many degrees of freedom that one can control if one wants to. And it's those degrees of freedom that wouldn't be there if it weren't for the reflectivity. But on this, on this um, issue, I understand that there is quite a contra controversy among your, among your colleagues, your philosophy colleagues. I mean, Douglas Hofstadter, for example, doesn't believe in any form of free will, I think. Or? Yes, I know. I, I, I've talked with Doug about it, and he... You disagree uh, here. We disagree. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's perhaps the one serious point of disagreement between us. Yeah. But I haven't talked about it uh, uh, with him recently. I, I had an opportunity a week or so ago, but I, we had other things that seemed more important to talk <laughs> but, about. But can, can, you, can you describe your position? And then I'll talk to Doug Hofstadter. He's coming to Sweden soon. Yes, yes. I'll ask him about it. And you, but, can, and you can tell him that, that if any time he wants to resume that discussion, I'm ready. I will tell him that. But tell no, me about no. your position. Do we have a free will? Yes, we do, in the only sense that matters. And in what sense is that? Well, first of all, um, uh, the idea that free will and determinism are incompatible is, I think, a 2,000-year-old a, a mistake. It's, it, it's older than that, in fact, but, but, but it, goes, it goes back to the pre-Socratics, and it goes back to Democritus, for instance. And, uh, because you believe in a deterministic world, right? Except for the quantum Yes, but, but, but let's... let's Take the worst case scenario. Let's suppose that the world is deterministic. Let's suppose that quantum physics, that this is a mirage, that in okay. fact it's, let's suppose that, that good old-fashioned Laplacian determinism is true. Okay. We can still have free will. Okay, that's interesting, because some people say that it's because of the quantum thing that we have free will. Now, that's now, just now I, think, I think that's uh, a complete uh, yeah. red herring, it's just a mistake. Yeah. The free will doesn't have anything to do with quantum indeterminacy. Okay, so, so let's suppose there is complete determinism. How do we have free will based on that, in that world? Oh, well, you have to work backwards thinking what we'd like. What would it, 
what would be good to have in the way of free will if you if you could have whatever you wanted presumably um, you wouldn't want to be constrained you'd want your own decisions to to determine what you did next and you'd want your decisions to be guided by knowledge that you had gathered from the world. Mm -hmm. And you would want the gathering process to be high quality. You wouldn't want to be gullible or uh, just plain stupid about mm -hmm. the conclusions that you drew from the information you gathered from the world. So you want to be well informed. You want to have a well-ordered control system, a desire system. You don't want to be obsessive or frozen with fear or, 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 or so hopelessly uh, overcome with, with anger or lust that you can't think. Suppose that you have all that. Then the decisions you make will be the ones that you want to make. And that's free will. Uh, and does determinism say that we can't? approximate that ideal say no it doesn't it doesn't say that at all now sometimes people get confused about this and they think well um, uh, for instance some people have said well what's depressing about determinism is that if determinism is true then I can't change no it doesn't follow it doesn't if determinism is true then Either it's determined that you can change or it's not determined that you can change. <laughs> but it's, uh, okay. change happens. Look yeah. around. In a, suppose the world is that you can't point to any change in the world and say, well, you see all that change? That shows that determinism isn't true. No, no. Mm. Of course you can change. Uh, as I once put it, <clears throat> um, it could be just as determined that you can teach an old dog new tricks as that you can't. <laughs> Okay, but when you, when you are criticized from religious people who have a dualistic yeah. view of the soul or whatever, what is your, I mean, what is your main argument against the dualistic view of the soul? Well, I think it's just incoherent, and it, we've, we've sort of known it was incoherent ever since Descartes. Descartes himself was seriously troubled by what seemed to be a, a, an awkward uh, little point of miracle in his view because he had a pretty clean idea of the conservation of energy. And how are you going to get an immaterial mind to control a material body? Uh, it, it takes energy. <laughs> um, uh, I, I like to point out that uh, in the world of children's cartoons there's a character Casper the friendly ghost yeah. and and as many children I've checked on this th they notice there's a sort of strange inconsistency because um, uh, Casper the friendly ghost being a ghost can just float right through a wall but he can also catch a baseball mm. <laughs> well, why doesn't the ball just go right through his hand uh, Clearly, uh, he's he's ghostly when he wants to be, and not ghostly when he, you know, he can stand on the ground and <laughs> mm. climb the ladder, but he walks through walls. It's just inconsistent, and that inconsistency isn't shallow. It's very deep. If you want to, if you want to be a dualist, you have to face the fact that uh, a non-physical substance, the mind is almost by definition incapable of making any difference in the physical world. Mm. So you end up having a mind, but it doesn't do oh, no you any use. good. Oh, no use, exactly. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I see what you mean, I see what you mean. But then, then you, you, a philosopher like we talked about it earlier, Thomas Nagel, who says that maybe consciousness is some kind of primitive qualia in matter, in matter itself. What do you respond to that? At first, it doesn't solve any of the interesting problems, and it's uh, it's just giving up. Um, um, I've asked. Uh, uh, there's a current vogue for this idea. Uh, it's called panpsychism. Yeah. 
the idea that there's a little bit of consciousness in everything, in every electron, in every, in every uh, photon, in every atom, in every grain of sand, there's a little bit of consciousness. <clears throat> well, here's what I think of that theory. I don't think it's any different from another theory which I have invented called pan-niftyism which says every atom is nifty, every, every electron, every photon, <laughs> everything is nifty. Now, what follows from that? Absolutely nothing. Nothing follows from, everything has a little bit of consciousness. As I like to say, uh, the question that really needs to be asked is, and then what happens? Exactly. So, I've got this conscious electron, right? How does that differ from an unconscious electron? What, what can it do? Yeah. And they don't have any, they haven't even thought about it. So I think that's, I think that is the most obviously bogus <laughs> retreat that, that I've ever encountered. <laughs> so what you're saying is that the idea has no explaining power whatsoever. Absolutely none. No, no, no. But why do they, why do they sort of present it then? Thomas Nagel, I mean, he's a respected philosopher. Well, in the case of Tom, who I've known and respected for over 50 years, uh, he's just got a mindset that wants things, he doesn't want science to explain all the mystery. Mm -hmm. And uh, I can fully appreciate that as a motivation. And I can even appreciate how somebody who has that motivation very strongly can devote a large part of his career, not all of it, he's done a lot of other good stuff on the side, uh, to uh, defending this possibility uh, just as best he can because he's afraid that if he, if he concedes it then somehow the world will be diminished in value, cheapened, rendered shallow or something like that. Mm -hmm. And this is a very uh, familiar, human, and even in some regards, I think, noble motivation. But I think it also uh, clouds people's thinking. Mm -hmm. I see what you mean. In part, I think it clouds people's vision in, in a way that is, uh, as it were, gratuitous. Uh, the thing they're afraid of is is not real. If they just turn the lights on and not worry about it, they'll see that the vision of consciousness and life and meaning that I can put forward from my anti-Mysterian perspective is, I think, more wonderful by far in the same way that today's scientific image of the world is so much more thrilling than, say, the ancient Greeks' idea. We, Instead of fiery chariots and cartoon gods running around, we've got we've got the Big Bang and uh, and uh, uh, the uh, Higgs boson and all this amazingly incredible gravitational waves now. Yeah, it's fantastic. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. The Nobel Prize this year in physics, you know. Yeah. Um, okay, but let, let's talk a little about about artificial intelligence. I mean, following from your view of consciousness, I guess that you would say that it is in principle possible to create an artificial, a conscious computer. In principle, yes. In principle. But you have no but, problem with that. No, I think, I think very clearly it's possible in principle. I think that the arguments against it being possible are all fallacious. Mm -hmm. uh, Searle's arguments and Penrose's arguments and, for instance, uh, the... Searle's the, Chinese room. For instance, yeah. yes. Uh, those those are, are deeply flawed. But the idea that we're on the edge, on the verge of creating artificial general intelligence, I think is is not remotely plausible. I think, I think that, uh, and I think this is very important socially, politically, because I think there's a great danger of hugely overestimating the actual comprehension and power of existing AI systems, and that people think we're much closer to making uh, what you might call good company <laughs> uh, uh, with AI than we are. 
and that we're in danger of uh, uh, fooling ourselves rather badly about some of the products of AI. In what way? What do you mean? Well, let's consider Watson, uh, IBM's Watson. It's a magnificent achievement. It's, it's a, s a stunningly powerful system of a computer system, and it was very clever the way they uh, uh, set it up so that it could play the game of Jeopardy on television and beat Ken Jennings, you know, world champion Jeopardy player. So that's, that's an impressive feat. Um, but if you think, well, look, it can do that. It's just on the edge. It's, it's you know, today, Jeopardy, tomorrow, a Nobel Prize, you know, for Watson, not for, you know. Uh, I think that is uh, so far from being true. It's, it's a little bit like somebody saying, well, we're going we're gonna to solve vision. And they say, look what we've got. Look what we've made. We've made an eyeball with a retina, and the image is formed on the retina just as in a human eye, and the image is then uh, uh, transduced into neural signals in the optic nerve. And so vision, we got it. No, no, no. <laughs> the eye is just the input to vision. Yeah, yeah. And the, the, the rest of it is, is, it's not just more of the same. It's the design of the rest of the visual system is uh, still pretty mysterious, although great progress is being made. But, but, it, but it's not simple and we're not close. Just having the retina and understanding how the retina works, it's a great beginning. But I would say that Watson, if you imagined Watson as being the core of, an, uh, of a general intelligence, that would be like thinking the eyeball or the retina was the core of, of, of a vision system. It's just the input. Mm, I see what you mean. But okay, so even but so, so what you're saying is that it will take hundreds of years before we have an artificial general intelligence. That I would think to, so. Yeah. And and one of the reasons that uh, I'm dubious is that um, I don't see who would pay for it or why. Well, <laughs> there's a lot of researchers who would think it's fantastic if you could develop it. Um, yeah, but. Suppose everybody thought that we should build a twice actual size Egyptian pyramid out of platinum and have it hover on the moon. Yes. Possible? I don't think it's logically impossible. No, no. I don't think we're going to do it, though, because it would, it would, the resources of, of person power and technology to do that, and what, what would we get from it? Why would we, who, who, what, what would pay for it? What would, what, why would this be a good idea? But why would it not be a good idea to develop a general intelligence that could solve more and more issues? Self-driving cars, uh, medical diagnosis. Self-driving cars are a long way from general intelligence. Yeah, let's, yeah, yeah. But, let's, mm -hmm. let's use the technology as it is being used. Let's have really intelligent tools. Mm. Why do we need colleagues? But couldn't, couldn't it be... Couldn't it, couldn't it be a moment where consciousness suddenly emerges in such a complex system? No, um, it suddenly emerges. Um, I think that's a sort of fantasy. Mm -hmm. um, I think that it's uh, the fantasy of, of thinking, well, more of the same. It's, it's a little better than, than the fantasy of somebody saying, well, look, I know how we're going to do this. According to the latest count, there's 86 billion neurons in the brain. So I've got a really good model of a neuron now, and in, in software, and I'm going to just get a big enough computer, and we're just going to put 86 billion neurons there. Then consciousness will emerge. No. <laughs> Not unless you figure out how to organize those neurons. And if you think they're going to self-organize automatically into consciousness, no. No. 
need a, you need an evolutionary process to do that. You, yes, you need yeah. an evolutionary process because there's a lot of R&D, a lot of design work yeah. that has to be done. But still, if you say that it's 500 years away before we have this, uh, as your friend and colleague Sam Harris says, imagine that if you get a signal from outer space from you identify intelligent aliens saying, we're coming to you in 500 years. Wouldn't we start plan for that now and how to deal with it? Oh, yes. I, in fact, that's a, uh, I've looked at that sort of fantasy too. Uh, <laughs> uh, it's an interesting one. Um, but I don't think uh, making an artificial general intelligence would be uh, the most... If we had a political argument, which we should, after receiving that message, and some people would say, well, let's get ready. I say, absolutely, I agree, let's get ready. Well, what should we do? Let's make a general intelligence. Oh, I don't know, well, why don't we make a giant strawberry shortcake instead? <laughs> I mean, <laughs> okay. the, the, there's many ways we might prepare for that. And taking on this dubious task of making a conscious robot We've got a lot of conscious people right now. They're very good at what they do. Um, maybe there's a better, maybe that I, I can list you lots of things that I think would be a wiser expenditure of money and a wiser harnessing of the understanding and the technology that we have uh, than trying, let, let me compare it with another prospect. Um, uh, somebody says, well, you know, what we've learned from these extra galactic intelligences coming is um, they're very small and they can fly like a, like a bee. And so somebody says, I know what we should do. We should make millions and millions of little robotic drone bees that are completely autonomous. That, that are, they're not like drones where you have a teleoperator somewhere else. These are just, uh, it's gonna be hard, the miniaturization alone is gonna, it's gonna be, it'll cost as much to make artificial intelligent bees as, but we really have to make bees. Why? If they're so darn smart, they won't need to talk to intelligent bees. They can talk to us. Okay. Okay, one final question. I mean, uh, going back to your book, would you say that we now have a theory of consciousness that sort of should be the final theory? Uh, no, I wouldn't say that, but I think we're getting closer. Uh, actually, not in, it's not in the book. The, the sketch that I put in the book is, I think, has significant amount of new substantial details that weren't in my earlier sketch, say, in Consciousness Explained, but I think there's more to go. But I, I see on all sides uh, great progress. Uh, I was just at a wonderful workshop in Edinburgh, which uh, has charging ahead on some, I think, very promising proposals about uh, how to harness uh, uh, Bayesian predictive coding uh, to, uh, in models of uh, conscious action. And I think we're, we're beginning to come up with some very good ideas about how to use the latest technical ideas to answer a question which we still don't know how to answer, and that is, uh, what, are, what, are, what are the systematic elements of information transmission and processing in the brain? It's all very well to put somebody in an fMRI scanner and say, well, look, we got information right over here in the thalamus, and we know that that information is being relayed, uh, you know, to the, the frontal cortex in such and such a way. Right, now, how, why, what's, and, and after all, 
at the level of fMRI, it's very hard to tell um, what you might call understood information from uh, leaking noise. <laughs> we have uh, a favorite example of mine is people have been impressed for decades, actually, with the fact that when you get excitation in one neural pathway from the senses, let's say, to some part of the brain, you get spreading activation. You see that the, the neighboring neural tracts are often also energized, as you can see from the scans. And the most natural thing in the world is to say, ah, oh, yes, these are being recruited. Well, maybe they're being recruited as allies. Maybe they're just being irritated. Maybe they're just angrily saying, would you shut up over there? You're, you're interfering with what I want to do. Mm. Um, and there's uh, uh, very little that we can say yet. As far as I know, I've been trying to keep up with the latest uh, research on this about what the content of particular neural uh, activity is and how it is used, how it is consumed by the recipients and not just endured by the recipients. Um, we have this uh, famous uh, Jennifer Aniston neuron. We know that <laughs> in the brain of one person, there, are, there is a very tiny area. It's not a single neuron. I mean, it may be, but the accuracy of the probe is not that good. But there's this spot which lights up every time Jennifer Aniston is the topic. If you look at a picture, if the woman looks at a picture of Jennifer Aniston, or hears Jennifer Aniston's name, or uh, uh, sees and, and, and it can be sort of any picture of her. Uh, uh, I'm sure if Jennifer Aniston herself walked into the room, that would certainly set this thing of us. So we, that's, that's cool. We, uh, we know that, that this place has a, among its tasks being excited and active when Jennifer Aniston is the topic. All right, how does that work? We don't have any theories of that yet. Mm -hmm. No, that's very interesting. I must ask you one more thing, actually. How do you relate to the big questions in moral philosophy? I mean, uh, are there any objective moral axioms, or is it just a social construct? <coughs> How does that relate to your theory of consciousness? It's not a, just a social construct. It's a very, very important social construct. And money is not just a social construct. Mm, okay. <laughs> if you don't have any, you are in trouble. And yeah. if you do, you, you have a lot of power. Um, so, yes, morality, of course it's a social construct. And, and basically Hobbes was on the right track when he said the state of nature is amoral. There's no morality at all. And I think people share that intuition that... Um, if, if, if a bear um, kills a human being, that's, that's regrettable, but it's not murder. No. The bear doesn't know any better. The bear, the bear is not a moral agent. The bear is a very, very competent and clever uh, carnivorous mammal, a predator, but not, not a murderer. No, but what you say to religious yeah. people who says that you, you can't have any moral standards if you're not religious, what do you say? Oh, I say that is one of the most preposterous fibs, fables, lies in the history of civilization. Okay. Um, uh, and what's amusing about it is that ever since it was formulated, people have seen that there was something uh, uh, sort of paradoxical about yeah. it. Plato Because it. Yes, absolutely. Uh, does, is it good because God commands it, or does God command it because it's good? Exactly. Uh, Ephraim. 
Plato. Yeah. Yeah, that's, and and that's a that's an embarrassing uh, a challenge to anybody who thinks that religion comes from God. Why should we care what some deity thinks is good? Now, moreover, and much more important and practically, uh, the history of the evolution of morality is one in which religion doesn't come off particularly well. Nobody today would want to live with Old Testament morality. I don't think anybody would want to live with Old Testament morality. Except ISIS. They're close, yes. And, but we all think of that as uh, a regrettably, you know, this is, they have an obsolete moral vision. Yeah. We've, we've learned better than that. They may yearn to go back to the good old days, but they weren't so good. Now, people say, well, but look at the wonderful role that the church played in the civil rights movement, for instance. Yes, but look at who the opponents of those church leaders were. Those were the other Christian churches who were try fighting hard for segregation. It's, you, you, if, if you want to name one, you've got to name the other. So I think that yeah. the idea that religion has been Religion has never, I think, been a pioneer in, in opening people's minds to a better, uh, better religion, uh, a better moral vision. There have been wonderful exceptions, wonderful examples of religious leaders who have taught us to think better about morality, but it's not a systematic feature of religion. And in any case, what does the heavy lifting is the gradual agreement coming out of the process, the political process of mutual persuasion. And, and we don't just accept some edict from some church. We, in fact, I like to imagine a, a sort of an idealized political process, which is how I think uh, morality gets gets justified to the extent that it does. We imagine a process where everybody is welcome to participate. Whatever you think is right and good, and whatever you think should be forbidden or discouraged, bring bring your case to this tribunal, and and we will discuss this all, hearing all voices respectfully, but. One thing you can't play is the faith card. You can't, if you say, well, we shouldn't do X because I'm a Yist, and Yists say, thou shalt never X. If that's your only reason, then all you've done is described a sort of an autobiographical fact about yours. And if you're not prepared to defend this prohibition, then, and if you say it's, no, you, you are unable to defend it beyond your declaration of faith. Well, then we'll have to say, oh, I'm sorry. You're just not competent to participate in this process. This is a process where you have to explain your task is to convince the rest of us who are not of your faith that this is a good idea. And if you refuse to undertake that task, then we just have to excuse you from the discussion. We'll try to keep your your interests in mind, but but you you've uh, you've sort of declared yourself uh, uh, not morally competent to to help us uh, legislate here. Uh, speaking of morally incompetent, and this is truly my last question. <laughs> How is it to live in a country with a president like yours right now? It's, yes, it's like having a four-year-old in, in the White House. It's, uh, it's terrifying. It's embarrassing. Uh, it's um, exhausting because uh, one of the things I've realized is how comfortable it was not to have to be constantly 
on edge politically and just on the edge of, of, of alarm every day. And, and now we've sort of become news junkies. Mm. And uh, uh, we sort of figure that at any moment we have, may have to really run to the barricades or start some remarkable political activity. Will it end in the next election, you think? I hope that's how it ends. I would just as soon not see impeachment because I don't think uh, Mike Pence is enough of an improvement and might be significantly worse. Um, uh, he is a person of no discernible talent at all and has some very uh, uh, alarming views. Uh, and so uh, unless he uh, himself gets caught in some ways and has to leave office the way Spiro Agnew did when, when he was Nixon's vice president, then I think we should uh, look askance at, at impeachment. Well, we may have to do it. I mean, the things may just get out of control. Uh, uh, they're on the edge of being out of control now. Mm. But I think that it would be better for the nation if, if for one thing, I think it's important for the people who are still Trump supporters to see just how bad a choice he is. And I want them, I want it brought home to them that he's not providing any of the things they wanted. And uh, the hard thing about that is uh, nobody likes to be told, I told you so. and. Uh, but they need to be, they need, they need to have it dawn on them that there were a lot of people saying that this was a bad idea. And now they have to face like, yeah, I guess it really was a bad idea, wasn't it? Yeah. <laughs> okay, thank you so much, Daniel Dennett. Thank you. You're welcome. That was fun.